Start to Exodus chapter 30. Last week, Exodus 29. What happened? Ordination. Ordination of who? Not all at once. The response is overwhelming. <laughs> who was ordained last week? Aaron and his sons, the high priests, the high priesthood. It's incredibly important. At this point right now, Aaron and his sons are the only priests. That has not been extended to the Levites yet. Just Aaron and his sons. Uh, they were ordained. There was this whole ritual that was done with blood and putting it on their ear, their bum, and their big toe, symbolizing them uh, hearing the word of God and doing the will of God and walking where God leads them and all covered in the blood, literally, of the sacrificial lamb. So now there's only a few more things that we have to finish out for the tabernacle to be complete. This, this mobile Mount Sinai that's been being built uh, for the past, you know, half dozen chapters or so. We come to chapter 30. It says, make an altar of acacia wood for burning incense. It's to be square, a cubit long and a cubit wide and two cubits high. Cubit's about two and a half feet or so, like from your, from your finger to your elbow. Its horns are to be one piece with it. Overlay the top and all the sides of the horns with pure gold. Make a gold molding around it. Make two gold rings for the altar below the molding. Two on opposite sides to hold the poles used to carry it. Make the poles of acacia wood and overlay them with gold. Put the altar in front of the curtain that is before the ark of the testimony, before the atonement cover that is over the testimony, where I will meet with you. This is the last implement inside the actual Holy of Holies. That's why it's entirely covered in gold. Everything inside the Holy of Holies is covered in gold. The Holy of Holies itself is a cube inlaid with gold. And inside that golden cube is where God will meet with his people once and for all. That has ramifications for how you read Revelation. At the end of the book, when you see the new Jerusalem, and what, lo and behold, it's a giant golden cube. It's saying something. The imagery is all the way back from Exodus. The, the presence of all of that gold is symbolic of the purity of the very uh, Shekinah, that term we'll see later, the, the heaviness, the, the dwelling, the glory of God. All of that is signified by this gold everything inside the Holy of Holies. This is the incense altar. Verse 7, Aaron must burn fragrant incense on the altar every morning when he tends the lamps. He must burn incense again when, the light, when he lights the lamps at twilight. So incense will burn regularly before the Lord for the generations to come. Do not offer on this altar any other incense or any burnt offering or grain offering. Do not pour drink offering on it. Once a year, Aaron shall make atonement on its horns. This annual atonement must be made with the blood of the atoning sin offering for generations to come. It is most holy to the Lord. So this is where this, this particular incense that we're going to hear about in a minute is going to be offered. And it's going to be constantly burning, day and night, constantly burning this incense, uh, this, this, this fragrant aroma coming from the very presence of God. Verse 11, then... The Lord said to Moses, when you take a census of the Israelites to count them, each one must pay the Lord a ransom for his life at the time he is counted. Then no plague will come on them when you number them. 
Each one who crosses over to those already counted is to give a half shekel according to the sanctuary shekel, which weighs 20 geras for the woman. This half shekel is an offering to the Lord. All who cross over, those 20 years old or more, to give an offering to the Lord. The rich are not to give more than a half shekel, and the poor are not to give less when you make the offering to the Lord to atone for your lives. Receive the atonement money from the Israelites and use it for the service of the tent of meeting. It will be a memorial for the Israelites before the Lord, making atonement for your lives. So what is this all about? In Scripture, when you take a census, it is for determining military service. 20 years and up, you register, you're counted. That's why all the lists, all the census numbers in Israel, it always says so and so 100,000 fighting men of this tribe, and so and so 100,000 men of this tribe. It's always, uh, it's for the purpose of seeing what standing army you have. And Israel is gonna be going into Canaan where they're gonna have to con conquer the land. They're gonna be going into battle. And so God is basically, they already know they're gonna to have to do a census. They already know they're gonna to have to do a military service if they're gonna fight any kind of battles. What God's saying is you're gonna do your census and every time each person is gonna pay this tiny amount and that's gonna be a ransom for their lives. What it means is that because the thing that's gonna be impressed on Israel is God is gonna be the one fighting the battles. They're going to do the actual fighting, but God is going to be the one who is making sure, if they're faithful to the covenant, that they win their battles. He's the one who's providing for their lives. And so this is built into this system of worship. Everything that they do, even the things that he calls them to do, the challenges of military conquest in this case, he is still sovereign over that. He's ruling over them. And they're to always remember, we, we this, this whole thing that we call the tabernacle temple, worship of God, all of it is is we pay this offering every time there's a census, every time we're counted ready to go to battle, we pay this as a token memorial that God is the one who goes before us. He's the one who fights the battle. The Ark of the Covenant itself is the thing that leads them as they go into battle. And this is part of the role of the priests in all of this. Then, verse 17, then the Lord said to Moses, make a bronze basin with its bronze stand for washing. Place it between the tent of meeting and the altar and put water in it. Aaron and his sons are to wash their hands and feet with water from it. Whenever they enter the tent of meeting, they shall wash with water so that they will not die. Also, when they approach the altar to minister by presenting an offering made to the Lord by fire, they shall wash their hands and feet so that they will not die. This is to be a lasting ordinance for Aaron and his descendants for the generations to come. Two times, so that they will not die. This is this, this service in the tabernacle, the God who's going to go before and, and, and mow down armies of Canaanites is the God who will then, that anger, that wrath will be immediately turned on Israel if they take him for granted. God's holiness is what is going before. God's holiness is what is enabling them to win this battle because they are not just Israel's not just God's favorite team and so he's going to make them have victory over the other teams. They are his instrument for cleansing the land of the Canaanites. These particular tribes, not just this worldwide carte blanche, whatever whoever Israel fights, God's against. No, not at all. That's not the case. Never has been, never will be. God's specifically calling them to cleanse the land, to wipe out, to drive out these particular peoples who have polluted, corrupted, uh, profaned the land.
to a degree not yet seen since the days of Noah. And so there's this cleansing element, this refining element of what God's calling Israel to do. And in return, to whom much is given, much will be required. They themselves have to be cleansed. They themselves have to be refined. And if they, in any way, shape, or form, take on the qualities of the Canaanites, then they themselves will be purged. This is how God reads it all through. This will be highlighted in the Leviticus Holiness Code, chapters 18 through 20. It'll be made crystal clear in Leviticus 18 through 20. And this uh, this dependence on, or, or this insistence on them doing everything right is so because they are the priesthood. They are the ones who are to communicate this to all of the people. They are walking object lessons. So if they don't care about keeping all the details, ah, it doesn't matter, big deal. I didn't quite wash the way God said, big deal, boom, they're dead. And it happens in Leviticus 10. This will happen to Aaron's two oldest sons who know this, who've been sitting here hearing all of this, and they're going to go and they're going to make strange fire on the altar, which is we don't know exactly what they did, but they didn't do what God said, and they're immediately consumed by that very same fire. It'll happen in the New Testament. Don't think God changed his ways just between Old Testament and New Testament. Ananias and Sapphira, they sell a field. They get a lot of money from it. They want to be seen as good and, and, and generous in the eyes of the church so they give this big offering but they keep a little bit back and they're asked did you keep some of this back no no we didn't boom they're struck dead at key turning points in in covenant history god puts a high emphasis on obedience when it's being done for the sake of a watching world and that's what we have here in the exodus that's what we had at pentecost which is exodus 2.0 so there's a reason that these things occur in these time periods like this. Uzo will learn it later when he's bringing the ark back to Jerusalem and it gets rickety and stable and so he just puts his hand up to steady it so that it pull off the ox cart and he's struck dead. Why was the ark on the ox cart to begin with? It's supposed to be carried on poles by priests and Levites only, not by anybody who wants to claim it as a military token. So again, God is strict in all of this, but he's strict but fair. Because his strictness goes both ways. It goes to the people who are uh, being judged, and it goes to Israel, who is the instrument by which he's judged. And this is all part of what he's trying to instill in his people. Last section of this part. Uh, then the Lord said to Moses, take the following fine spices. 500 shekels of liquid myrrh, that's about 12 and a half pounds. Half as much, that is 250 shekels of fragrant cinnamon, 250 shekels of fragrant cane, so like almost 30 pounds of stuff in all this mixture. 500 shekels of cassia, all according to the sanctuary shekel, and a hint of olive oil, which is about a gallon. Mix these, this is big, this is like fill up like this whole big tray or even more than that actually. It's a big mound of this fragrant, expensive stuff. Make these into a sacred anointing oil, a fragrant blend, the work of a perfumer. In other words, get somebody who's a pro that knows how to do this, that does it for a living, to do this. It'll be the sacred anointing oil. Then use it to anoint the tent of meeting, the ark of the testimony, the table, all its articles, the lampstand, all its accessories, the altar of incense, the altar of burnt offering, and all its utensils, and the basin with its stand. In other words, everything that God's been describing these past few chapters, put this stuff on it. You shall consecrate them so they will be most holy, and whatever touches them, will be holy or must be holy. This is either a statement of what will happen or a command 
everything that touches it has to be holy. You can read it either way, there's implications either way if you read it. Verse 30, anoint Aaron and his sons and consecrate them, what we just read about last chapter, so that they may serve me as priests. Say to the Israelites, this is to be my sacred anointing oil for the generations to come. Do not pour it on men's bodies. Do not make any oil with the same formula. It's sacred. You are to consider it sacred. Whoever makes perfume like it and whoever puts it on anyone other than a priest must be cut off from his people or will be cut off from his people. Again, we don't know if it's a command or a statement of fact. And then the last, then the Lord said to Moses, take fragrant spices, gum resin, anica, galbanum, pure frankincense, all in equal amounts, and make a fragrant blend of incense, the work of a perfumer. It's to be salted and pure and sacred. This is like a powder substance. The other was oil, this is powder. Grind some of it in powder, place it in front of the testimony in the tent of meeting where I will meet with you. It should be most holy to you. Do not make any incense with this formula for yourselves. Consider it holy to the Lord. Whoever makes any like it to enjoy its fragrance must be cut off from his people. So now in this section, God has, has determined the recipe for these two uh, substances that the priests and only the priests will use. There's this oil, this, this anointing oil, huge vat of this stuff, and it's incredibly expensive. Uh, in this time period, ancient Israel, these are herders, shepherds, they work in the fields in a barren, dry, desert, rocky climate. Um, what is scarce out there is water. As a result, Israelites usually wouldn't bathe very frequently. If they did, it would be more like we maybe think washing or like a, you know, a rag or something or a sponge bath or something. I mean, certainly wasn't just sitting in a tub uh, or taking a shower. A shower would be out of the question. So the way that you kept clean, the way that you kept from stinking in the ancient world was you didn't. You stunk. So you masked it. That's how you kept clean. That's how you kept from stinking. You masked your stink. Remember, they're working with animals. If you've ever worked with animals, they smell. I can't even go in vets' offices without getting like, oh, it stinks in here. It smells like dog pee and cat hair, and it just it's gross. Animals smell, and those are domesticated. Those are pets that are like the good-smelling animals. When you go into a barnyard, it's even worse. My granddad used to raise chickens. We had chicken houses, and, and that's the worst smell in the world. Hell will smell like chicken houses. <laughs> you ever end up there, and it just get into you and permeates you, and it's awful. Um, smell, and I preached a sermon on this a couple of weeks ago over in a town in Ashboro. Smell is a powerful sense. Smell is linked more than any other sense to your memory. And so you can just smell something and immediately can bring on the most wonderful pleasure or it can make you vomit in your mouth from disgust. Smell can do anything in between. It's incredibly powerful. Well, God is using smell. Even to the Israelites, God is using all of the senses. They can see things. They can actually touch it. They can hear it. They can smell it even. So this anointing oil, it, you know, you would, if I were an ancient Israelite man and came in from the field and smelled awful and I wanted to impress my ancient Israelite wife and not smell awful for her, whether it was our honeymoon or something or a special occasion anniversary, I would take oil and I would 
coat myself in oil. The Romans did this too. You rub oil, like think of bodybuilder competition, rubbing oil all over yourself, and then there's a little curved stick, I think it's called a strigil, uh, at least in Roman it was, and you would then scrape it, you'd scrape the oil off, and it would drip on the ground, and it would drip off with all of your sweat, and all of your dirt, and all the nastiness, and what was left behind was soft, good smelling skin. That's how you shower in, in ancient Israel, in a lot of parts in the ancient world. So, your oils were like your cologne for women, like your perfume. You put it in your hair. Your hair would be all dirty and stringy, and you know, you put the oil in it and smooth it out and make it shiny and make a clean feel. Um, so what God is saying is, this oil is going to be used for Aaron and his descendants only, the high priest only, is going to be completely different than any other oil. And God says, no one is allowed to make this oil for their own use. Same with the incense inside your house. It would be overwhelming. A lot of the animals in Israel slept indoors, especially smaller or families that had smaller flocks where they weren't everyone counted. And you didn't want, you know, any kind of wild animal or something to come in at night. You would bring the flock sometimes even in your house. And so your house would stink. There's no central heat and air. There's no ventilation. Uh, you know, your house would smell. How do you get rid of the smoke? You burn incense. Just like hippies did in the 60s to cover up weed when they didn't want their parents to know. <laughs> burn incense. So incense had a smell and it characterized you. Your oils had a smell and it characterized you. God's incense and God's oils had a unique smell and it characterized him. Now think about this. Aaron and his descendants, they're ministering in the Holy of Holies, surrounded by this incense. You know how if you go eat at Subway for the rest of the day, you smell like cheese and bacon bread? And not good bacon bread, like Subway bacon bread. It's awful. Your clothes just stink. Or like you go to Starbucks and you smell like Starbucks for the rest of the day. Well, think about that now. Aaron, the priests, the high priests, they're going to go in and they're going to smell like this stuff. They're going to have this stuff wiped on them, anointed over all of their implements, over all of the vessels that they're using. Everything is coated in this, this layer of this anointing oil. When they leave, they're going to smell. And they're going to smell different than anything else in all of Israel. They're going to smell different because they've been in the presence of God. How they smell, people will be able to tell if a priest is coming or if a priest has visited a home because of how they smell. They're going to spread everywhere this aroma of being with God everywhere they go. The high priests. Not every other Israelite, just the high priest. So what is this big deal? That's the end. This is not well put more of Christ in this world to God. To some, we are a fragrance of life that brings life. To others, we are a fragrance of death that brings death. Who is worthy for such a task? What Paul is saying, drawing from not just Roman festival processions and everything, which are in his mind, but also because he's a Pharisee of Pharisees, he's drawing from this imagery of the aroma, the smell of the high priesthood in the Old Testament. And he's saying that's what we are under the New Covenant. The New Covenant brought us all into unity with the high priest, Jesus, and therefore made us all share in his identity as high priest to this world. So as he is, so we are in this world. And he smells different in this world. So therefore, we should smell different in this world. In everything, 
when I preached on this a couple weeks ago, I preached on the sermon, I said, you know, it, it's not just about like whether you go off into the mission field and live in a hut in Africa, like my friend Justin did for a year, or whether you give all of your money to an organization to feed the children or anything like that. Those are great and those are fine. But more important are your everyday smells. How much do you leave at a tip at a restaurant, even when the service is bad? How do you act in traffic when someone cuts you off or they're driving ridiculously slow and they take forever to make that turn and get out of your way and tell which one gets under my skin? Um, how do you act towards that person? How do you treat people in the service industry who are beneath your station in life? How do you treat your bosses? Do you try to milk every little bit you can out of the company because they owe me? Or do you do the work that you're paid for? All of these things determine how do we treat the ladies that make this food for us and bring it out every week? Do we say hello to them? Do we ask them how their day is going? Do we leave them money that they get? Or do we just throw a dollar in and eat our nice lunch? All of these things determine how we smell. Everything that we do determines how we smell because the priests didn't stop smelling like priests when they left the tabernacle. They smelled like that for the rest of the day. This is the night and the next day and the next night. 24-7, they smelled like God's presence. So then the question for us when we come to the New Testament and we read when Peter tells his people, you are all a kingdom of priests. We were like, yay, that's awesome. Priesthood of all believers. If you're a good Baptist, you champion that. The priesthood of all believers. You know, we don't need priests. We don't need intermediaries. It's between us and God. Well, that's the good news. The bad news, maybe, is, yeah, we don't need intermediaries because we are priests to God. But then what does that tell us about our responsibility to the people who we are mediating God to? And how we treat them. How we treat each other. How we treat our families. How we treat our co-workers. How we treat the annoying people that we run into at Walmart or wherever we are where people annoy us. How do we treat them? How do we smell? So then, 31. We're going to do two chapters. This ends it out. Then the Lord said to Moses, See, I have chosen Bezalel, son of Uri, son of Ur of the tribe of Judah, and I have filled him with the Spirit of God, with skill, ability, and knowledge in all kinds of crafts to make artistic designs for work in gold, silver, and bronze, to cut and set stones, to work in wood, and to engage in all kinds of craftsmanship. Moreover, I have appointed Aholiab, son of Ahissamach of the tribe of Dan, to help him. Also, I have given, him skill, uh, given skill to all the craftsmen to make everything I've commanded you. Tent of meeting, the ark of testimony, the atonement cover, all the furnishings of the tent, the table, its articles, the pure gold lampstand, all its accessories, the altar of incense, the altar of burnt offering, and its utensils, the basin with its stand, and also the woven garments, both the sacred garments for Aaron the priest and the garments for his sons when they serve as priests, and the anointing oil and fragrant incense for the holy place. They are to make them just as I commanded you. God here says, not only are you supposed to make these things, I'm going to send you the guys and the girls that are going to make these things. These are the people who I've chosen. He names one in particular, Bezalel, who's going to oversee all of this. Bezalel will give another shout out later. Bezalel is the first, here's a trivia time, right? Bible trivia. First person ever filled with the Holy Spirit. 
in all of scripture, Bezalel, an artist. Yes. <laughs> I'm an artist. I like that. The first person ever filled with the Holy Spirit was given that spirit of God in order to accomplish the task that God had set for him, which was constructing this tabernacle and all of the implements that God's describing exactly as God had shown it in Moses. So God's providing for this stuff to be built by drafting people alongside to be co-laborers with him. God could have just plopped this thing down before he made it. He created the world just by speaking it. He could have easily created the tabernacle by speaking it. But he did. He entered into relationship with artisans in the midst of Israel. This is a joint venture that God is doing. He's chosen to co-participate. Final thing of this whole chunk that we've been in of Exodus, this entire uh, section of the tabernacle. Then the Lord said to Moses, say to the Israelites, you must observe my Sabbaths. This will be a sign between me and you for the generations to come so that you may know that I am the Lord who makes you holy. Observe the Sabbath because it is holy to you. Anyone who desecrates it must be put to death or will be put to death. Whoever does any work on that day must be cut off from his people. For six days, work is to be done. But the seventh day is a Sabbath rest holy to the Lord. Whoever does any work on the Sabbath day must be put to death. The Israelites who observe the Sabbath, celebrating it for generations to come as a lasting covenant. It will be a sign between me and the Israelites forever. For in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth, and on the seventh day he abstained from work and rested. When the Lord finished speaking to Moses on Mount Sinai, he gave him the two tablets of the testimony, the tablets of stone described by the finger of God. So just like in the Genesis creation account, remember the tabernacle creation account and that we've been reading in the Genesis creation account has a number of things in common. Some of the imagery is the same, trees and cherubim and uh, gold and precious jewels, all that stuff's mentioned in Eden. The tabernacle construction section, which we've been in for the past few weeks, harkens back to the creation in a lot of ways, both end in a Sabbath celebration, both end in a Sabbath ordinance, and, and God is instilling in his people, this is part of who you are as my people. You're going to be people who enter into how I do things. And how I did something was do it for six, rest for one. So Israel is going to do that in perpetuity. Do it for six, they're going to rest for one. Now, what does it mean you can't work on the Sabbath? Because Jesus would get in all kinds of trouble for this. Telling people to pick up their mat. Oh, that's work. Commanded him to do it on the Sabbath. Healing somebody, that's work. Can't do that on the Sabbath. No the work that's being done here, the word in Hebrew is occupation or your job, labor. The thing you do to earn your income is what he's saying. Don't do that thing on the Sabbath. He's not saying don't do any, right now there's, there's, there's an invention in Israel that's kind of making waves. It's a, it's a Sabbath light switch. You can't turn on a light without breaking Sabbath according to rigid ultra-orthodoxy because that's work. Elevators don't run in Israel on the Sabbath because that's considered work. Although walking up the stairs somehow is. Uh, it's this very strange whole system of traditional rabbinic rulings on what is and what isn't work. Buses don't run on the Sabbath in Israel. Um, and, and much to the chagrin of the majority of Israel's population who are secular Jews who don't give a rip about the Sabbath, they get really annoyed because they can't go to the clubs and you know, wherever. Um, 
so there's a light switch that's like it, it uses I don't know it's like quantum improbability or something weird, but it uses this where if you touch it, you're not technically doing the thing that turns the switch. And so therefore the rabbis of being kosher and you can use that without violating Sabbath. Straining, straining out a gnat and swallowing a camel. Um, Jesus got into trouble for that kind of stuff, but his point was Sabbath was created for mankind, not mankind for the Sabbath. God's instilling, instituting the Sabbath here because he wants Israel to participate in what he is about, which is do it for six, rest for one. And what that's going to show Israel, Sabbath is an act of worship. It's an act of obedience and it's an act of trust. Remember, we can get by for not working for a couple of days. Food will still be in the refrigerator. Our, our lights will still stay on. We're okay. But go live out in the wild in nature for a while. You have to constantly be working. If you watch survival shows, you know, like Bear Grylls or Naked and Afraid or any of those shows where they go out in the woods, they have nothing and have to survive. They're constantly doing stuff. There's no downtime when you're just living by the work of your hands. There's no downtime if you come from farming families, especially like 20th century, mid, early 20th century farming families, which is both sides of my family. There's not downtime. Farmers didn't leisurely read world literature on their spare time because they didn't have spare time. You were up at dawn, you worked until dark, you slept, you got up, you did it again. What God's instilling in Israel is, you gotta trust me on this, guys. I know you live by the work of your hands, and I know you're a pastoral society, and I know that, that you aren't going to have these huge storehouses, and this, you're not going to have it easy like they had in Egypt, but I'm the one that's providing for you. Remember, you're going to Canaan, the land flowing with milk and honey. Milk and honey are wild provisions, not cultivated provisions. So I'm going to be providing for you in this land. In return, you're going to trust me by not working one day a week and not letting your servants work on you. Not even letting your animals work on you. Everything gets nailed in God's kingdom. What's the purpose of the Sabbath? And Israel, if they continue that, the, the, the idea is if you keep this, then I will provide everything you need and more. And he's gonna do that in numbers with the provision of the, or he's already done in Exodus, provision of the manna, the day before Sabbath, there's twice a day they gather and they have plenty for the whole next day. Um, so all along the way, he's doing these things to craft these people to, to get them to see what kind of God he is, what kind of people they're to be in order to be a light to the nations. That's the whole purpose of it all. They are living their lives, not knowing that 2,000, 4,000 years from when this is taking place, their lives are going to serve as examples for God's people all over the world, including in a steakhouse in South Charlotte. <laughs> but that's what we have. That's why it's been given. Uh, next week, things get, they go off the rails. Uh, next week, almost the entire Exodus gets undone. Everything we've read for 32, 31 chapters is about to be lost in one chapter next week. So, be sure to be here for that. <laughs> have a great day.